3: guests. You wouldn't settle for watching a blurry TV, would you? So why settle for just OK TV sound? Upgrade your streaming and sound all in one with Roku Stream Bar. This powerful two-in-one upgrade for any TV lets you stream your favorite entertainment in brilliant 4K HDR picture and hear every detail with auto speech clarity. Whether you're hosting a party or just cleaning the house, turn it up and rock out with iHeart Radio and room-filling sound. Learn more about Roku Stream Bar today at Roku.com.
5: This is Westward. Westward is a production of the Dan Patrick Podcast Network and iHeartRadio.
6: I'm Bobby Glanton-Smith, and this is Westward, bonus episode two.
7: There are certain things you should comment on that are important to you, and the rest of it is keep out of it, Okay. And um, I have just, I've been uniquely different in some of the things. And then I've got some other things here that uh, I always collect stuff. And, and um, there's about, how many of them are there? <clears throat> there's 17 of them, okay? Short. Before you lead, follow. To be a real teacher, you must be a le- learner first. Before you add, subtract. Every day, attempt to do more of what matters and less of what does. Not. Uh, Before you speak, listen. The better you know yourself, the better capable you are of enhancing your life. Before you take, give. We all wear an invisible mask that says, make me feel important. Before you cry, smile. Smiling is the best medicine in the world. And I tell you, it's also the most disarming thing in the world. Before you succeed, fail. Your growth depends on your willingness to be uncomfortable. Seven, before you touch, see. See. Each of us would be better off if we master the ability to place other, ourselves in other <laughs> shoes of others. Before you run, walk. If you want to travel fast, travel alone. If you're going to move far, go together. Before you believe, doubt. Falling is a part of life. Getting back up is living. Inside every difficulty is a hidden opportunity, which is really true. Before you think, act. Design the life you wish to live. Life is always under construction. 12, before you judge, understand. Look beyond what is into what can be and further into what should be. Before you find, seek. Never lose sight of the journey and the bridges built from the sacrifices that brought you across. 14, before you, before you teach, learn. Investing in your self-development is best investment you'll ever make in your life. Before you hate, love. Makes your life a remarkable story of love, courage, and perseverance. Before you cross, look. See what others do, do not see. Do what others will not do. Ask what others are afraid to do. Give more than others are willing to give. And seven, before you die, live. Do not die with your dreams inside of you. So um, those are some of the things that I resonate with in my life because deep down inside of me is something different inside of me than most and almost every fucking athlete ever met because I do care. Bobby, you asked who's the most competitive person in the world. I wouldn't say it on the podcast. I'm right at the top of the list. Right at the top of the list. So, if you don't mind, I want to bring these things up. Sure. sure. Okay. Now. Um, okay, you go ahead and start. I'm sorry? Don't give me one of those fucking gummy bears.
6: First thing, uh, on a lighter note, when I was coming up as a kid in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, I was a Walt Frazier fan, big time. Earl Monroe fan. And um, a Richard Pryor fan. And Richard (laughs) used to do this joke uh, about you. And then later you told me the story.
7: You know, I had always admired comics. And for some reason, the comedians today are... None of them will compare to Richard Pryor, okay? And I say that with all respect to the others. Um, His ability to storytell... And make it funny, uh, talking about where he came from. But um, it was one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life, okay? And obviously he was, you know, he didn't use the correct language all the time. (laughs) And so I think if you're in a locker room, there's certain language, certain words that come out that are uh, more prominent than others. And, you know, I don't believe swearing is the word that we're talking about here but making fun of each other, and it's just a term. And it means nothing, but I'll never forget that tape. I still have it. Um always greatly admired him, and there is a funny story. <clears throat> he was in, uh, I think, Superman, I believe he was in, and um, I have a son by the name of Ryan, and, and um, Richard was, lived two doors from me, and so we went to dinner one t- night at this Italian restaurant in um, Westwood, and I walk in there with my son, and <clears throat> he looked over and said, Oh, Dad, there, there's, Richard there's Richard over there. There's Richard <clears> over there. <throat> and so uh, I looked up, and he looked at me, and I, we waved at each other and didn't want to bother each other. So anyway, on his way out, he stopped by the table, and uh, <clears throat> I said, Richard, I'd like for you to meet my son Ryan. And I said, he was a big fan. He loved you and, and, um, and um, Superman. All of a sudden, my son is under the table. He's embarrassed. Richard got under the table with him. <laughs> and when he left, my son was so mad. And he was little. He's only about nine, 10 years old. And he was little. And he said, that was the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to me in our life. And it's really one of the funniest things I can remember when it concerns my kids. I read vociferously about people of all walks of life. I just finished reading a book last night on on um, ex president and also a general Ike Eisenhower, a fascinating man and a great president, by the way. Um, and so I've always had this incredible thirst for knowledge about people who've accomplished something. Uh you read the stories of Nelson Mandela, Rosa Parks. Uh, um, uh, Martin Luther King, his ability to speak and command respect. Um, There's just uh, I, I, I just finished a second book on uh, Malcolm X, <clears throat> an amazing speaker, and the change in his life when he was he went from one extreme to the other, um, and to think that this guy had who had changed so much, and he wanted a different view of, of this world. Okay, he did than what he was watching and um, another brilliant man and extremely smart because he had a different belief than Muhammad and um, it was it was reading these two books made me think my goodness if he hadn't have started his life out maybe he would have been a president of the United States he was brilliant smart Um, You know, I just looked today, this morning, and some young rapper got shot and killed this morning, another one. I'm saying to myself, why, in all races, why do we do this to ourselves? I hate violence. I hate violence. And uh, I met this young man uh, at one of the Clipper games this year, very nice, very polite, and 20 years old, and he's gone. Life is so senseless.
6: Did
7: you ever get to meet Nipsey Hussle? I did not, but uh, knowing about him and reading about him, he was an impressive guy, a really impressive guy. And as I say, in America, you know, we're, we have the right to bear arms. Um, but my goodness, uh, life is cut too short, so sad. Uh, and he has something he wanted to give back to the community. Community pride is something really, really, really strange. Personal pride is something really strange because people go about their their lives and they think everything is going to be great every day. It's not going to be great every day, but particularly the people who try to help make a difference. For some reason, if they're in the wrong place, the wrong area, have the wrong affiliation with people, the people who can help make a change are gone far too soon and all we do is hold memorials for them and you say to yourself no shame on you shame on you this person was a difference maker you are listening to westward on the dan patrick podcast network we'll be right back
0: as someone who lives for politics when a major scandal unfolds
7: it was shocking
0: i have to know what were they thinking
1: guests.
6: I remember long before I met you, uh, I read Wood uh, Sherman's book, uh, "Just Like Any Other Seven-Foot Black millionaire Living Next Door," and he went into some of the, the, the challenges of having three at that time megastars on the floor at the same time.
7: Well, you have to go back in time to see where the game has evolved to, and I so said, now we, everyone's talking about kind of multitask players play out in the court, play but the back to the basket shoot threes that are seven feet. You never saw that. Uh, you never ha- saw the other players being taught things at an early age. And the first thing that most of these kids do when they get them basketball, they all learn how to dribble. Even big guys can really dribble th- today, really dribble. Of course, you don't want them to do it because many times it's going to be a turnover. But it's um, it was just amazing to, to think that, uh, that Bill... Because if it's a Bill, he could come out on the floor and play you, okay? He could play you. Uh, almost, I don't think there was another center that could do that effectively. Wilt could bother you with his length. But still, Bill was a different uh, animal in terms of, of the way he could defend uh, in the post, out in the court. He would have been a prolific shot blocker in, today, in today's game. He had the greatest timing. He could run like the wind. Um... I used to call him the plastic man. You have pictures of him blocking shots, and his body was, his body would be extended, and he would never, like he would reach over people and never touch anyone.
5: As a GM, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on some of your biggest hits and some of your biggest misses. I think it's fascinating. Before we were talking, before before we started the interview, you were reading a couple quotes that you like about being a teacher. Um, being a learner before a teacher and failing before you succeed. Um, Do you think, I guess first off, that your hardships as a player, losing in all those finals, did that make you a better talent evaluator? Did stewing on those losses and that?
7: No, no, it doesn't. Um, Losing, what some general said in the war, war is hell, okay? losing as hell in my mind and I, I feel very confident that the people that have uh, that I've been involved with I've been very fortunate to be part of bringing some really good players and being involved if other teams or good players have come there. And you know everyone talks about glorifies you and this and that. I'm not into that. that's not who I am. All I care about, I want the people that are drafted, I want them to be understand that when you bring these people in here uh, to play for a respective team, whoever it would be, Uh, if for the Lakers, it's a special place to play. If for the Clippers, it's going to be a special place to play, and it's gaining traction. But to me, it's all about the kids. The worst mistake I ever made in my life when I was young, we needed a big guy, and I drafted a kid by the name of Earl Jones. He was from West Virginia, and um, it's probably the biggest disaster in my own mind. It wasn't because of talent, but there's one other element that comes in in evaluating players. Hard work is a skill. Getting back to the original thought about drafting people, um, you know, we have so many analytical people in our league today, and we try to draft based upon numbers and things. I would never do that. I would never do that, and frankly, I wouldn't want to hear it um, for this reason. If somebody can read what's inside of a person, your heart, and some, if somebody can read how your brain is wired, then I'll start to believe it. But I do, I do think analytical people have a place in this sense that you can see there's so much data today on players. I think they know when they go to timeout, uh, did he take two gulps of water or one gulp of water, uh, which all seems so trivial. But you can look at players, and to me it's a great learning tool for players to be able to go out and see where they're not very efficient from, areas they're not very efficient from. And then secondly, for coaches to see, look at the same data and say, well, we're preparing for – uh, a long playoff series, maybe not so much in the regular season because the game, it's like a marathon. You just game after game after game, different style, different style, different players. But in a playoff, you can clearly see where players are not as efficient as others. Uh, but uh, as I say, the, the worst mistake I ever made was drafting uh, a kid that was really talented. Uh, I don't think he liked to play basketball, I forgot him. Uh, and more importantly, um, the work. There was no work ethic there.
5: Who are the mongooses that you drafted or that you helped uh, helped scout? Who are the guys, the hardest working guys?
7: Well, as I say, hard work is a skill. <clears throat> I will tell you, if you look at the Laker rosters over the over the years, they've always been hard working players. And every team wants the same player. They want somebody hard working. But what do they want? Everyone wants a big star for a reason. A big star helps you win, but more importantly, there's a financial aspect to it because he draws people. Uh, there's a, Just look around the league and the ones that are the biggest stars. You go to try to go to their games, there's elevated ticket prices now. They have selective ticket pricing throughout the league. And what are they about? They're about the best players in the league. It's not about the team. It's the best players.
6: You know, Jerry, um, you came over to uh, the Americans' uh, AU team uh, and worked and observed some of the kids. And then on a different occasion, you bought a box of books, West by West. And if you would, recollect sitting in the room with these young kids and sharing with them some of the nuances of becoming an elite athlete.
7: Well, number one, I think if you find something you like to do, you'll never work a day in your life. First of all, I've never worked a day in my life because I've just been enthralled with the competition and more importantly, something that I felt I was pretty good at. Um, That to me was the start of it. But with these young men, and thanks to our friend Rock, um, he believed in these kids and he tried to take him out of harm's way. And you see so many people in the inner cities that if they would take that same approach and give them hope, but more importantly, tell them what you have to do to get there.
6: Um, Would you be so kind to uh, share with the audience uh, something that you shared with me a few years ago, and it's a a reflection of who you are as as a person. Over the years, I've seen you speak out on behalf of athletes from other teams, especially when they were being, you know, maligned, if you will. And a few years ago, when one LeBron James was playing with the Miami Heat and catching a lot of flak, you spoke out about the fact that people were being too harsh on him. And uh, you shared with me a conversation that you had with him right before he won his first championship. Could you? Speak about it.
7: Well, first of all, you know, I really don't interact with many players in the other team. I, I met LeBron when he was uh, uh, what, 17 years old. He was doing a shoe commercial, and uh, there was about four older players that were involved in it. And the thing I was most impressed with him when, when he was young was that he seemed to be singularly different. Uh, he seemed to really have this great respect of the game, and you always felt that just that he was one of those players that was going to be an iconic name. And as I say, it's awkward to talk about him because I could get fined for doing this, okay? I could. And if I get fined, I get fined. But I, I have unbelievable admiration for him. And the things that he's done beyond basketball are what's important to me. Every player today has a right to go where he want to by collective bargaining agreement. There seems to be no loyalty regardless. And I think if there's something that, honestly, I would love to see changed, even though when I was with the Lakers, there was one time when I did not want to be here. I did not. I was lied to uh, by an owner. Uh, I didn't want to be here. And I wish I could have left. I would have left. And that would have been a tragedy... For me to do that, but I just like people that are honest and straightforward. Um, Sometimes being honest is hurtful, but with LeBron, he is, again, what he's done for the city of Akron, uh, these young kids at risk, I applaud him. I applaud him. Um, I wish there were more athletes, because the enormous wealth of some of these athletes, Tiger Woods Foundation. Oh my gosh. I went to his foundation. The most amazing place I've ever seen in my life. And even though I had met him and know him a little bit, um, um, my admiration for him grew, not because of what he accomplished playing golf, but what he his legacy, uh, some of the things these kids do are amazing. Uh, it's just amazing what the power of important people and people who, and for some reason, athletes seem to be the ones that every young kid wants to be associated with some way, shape, or form. I've just felt that being in, uh, being around some of these uh, elite athletes, and many of them keep quiet at what they do, but they're givers, they're not takers. And to have that kind of social conscious...
5: Next question, um, again for an audience who might not know who Steve Ballmer is, can you start a question? Can you start an answer? Um, Steve Ballmer is, and just elaborate on uh, who he is and what he does. Do.
7: Well, as I say, I didn't know what to expect when I was when I first met Ballmer, Mr. Ballmer. Um, uh, I didn't really know. Uh, he wanted to. I had breakfast with him, and uh, we were talking and. He asked a bunch of questions, and, and I, you know, you try to get a feel for who you're dealing with. And, and, and um, he was, he'd asked me questions about the Clippers and what I thought, and I thought, and again, you know, I don't like to really uh, seem mean-spirited because I hopefully I'm not. Some people would say you would be, but uh, hopefully I'm not. But uh, I, I told him, I said, I said, your greatest advantage here in Los Angeles will be you as a person. I said, Don Sterling was incredibly disliked by everyone. Um, uh, he, uh, to me, he abused the privilege of being an owner. Um, and I said, from the start, you're going to be elevated to a sta- uh, to a status that's far beyond him. And I said, the other thing, and when somebody sees you, uh, you know, they're always talking about money. Um, and I said, just talking to you, um, you're real. And I said, you're not like someone who uh, uh, places himself above others because of money. You could tell that immediately uh, about him. And I think in this world today, uh, the one thing we always talk about is money. Uh, money is many times the root of all evil. It changes people enormously. Uh, But he is a giver. And I think I could sense that about him right away. You are listening to Westward on the Dan Patrick Podcast Network. We'll be right back.
1: guests.
3: You wouldn't settle for watching a blurry TV, would you? So why settle for just OK TV sound? Upgrade your streaming and sound all in one with Roku Stream Bar. This powerful two-in-one upgrade for any TV lets you stream your favorite entertainment in brilliant 4K HDR picture and hear every detail with auto speech clarity. Whether you're hosting a party or just cleaning the house, turn it up and rock out with iHeart Radio and room-filling sound. Learn more about Roku Stream Bar today at Roku.com.
6: Game itself. Uh, is it possible for a team with a traditional center to win a, a world championship
7: in 2020? Boy, oh boy, unless you're really versatile, they, they make it tough, okay? With all the three point shots in the game today, you know, you'll have teams come down and shoot one on five. And then here are your other teammates running up the court, the ball rebounds, and they're running back the other way. It's going to be a layup. I don't like excessive three-point shooting. And I've always asked the question. I have people ask me that all the time. I just think some of it, it looks like playground basketball. And it's the evolution of the game. It's not going to stop. It's not going to stop as these players become much more uh, uh, versatile regardless of what their size is. You're going to develop a different skill set, you know, uh, everyone wants to shoot the ball like Steph Curry, okay, or Clay Thompson. Uh, they're two unbelievable shooters, and they're pretty at doing it. And, they, and they'll—I I watch these, I watch people shoot around, and and particularly the, over at Clipper Prax, and I say to myself, you guys don't know what shooting is all about. <laughs> you ought to go up and watch these two guys shoot. <clears throat> but but anyway, I do think the game is in an evolutionary period. Um, you know, one time it was the Celtics, and then it was the uh, the Bulls. It was the Lakers. It was Detroit. And you think that all the different styles that those teams played. Okay, the Pistons were like a bunch of of I don't what somebody got in the word using thugs, um, like a bunch of miners. When you go play those guys, miners used to go in the coal mines, and Friday they would go to the nearest bar. And particularly in West Virginia, particularly in West Virginia because it was a dry state, and they'd go in these bars, and what they do? They all get drunk and they go fight afterwards, okay? So um, I think what it would create, um, or what's being created, is a game that it's become more appealing because you can see more of the athleticism involved. But I often wondered if a really good team, a really good team, would say, we're not going to take but 10 threes a game. And so they would eliminate a lot of the possessions where there would be no ability to get back and play defense. If they played a really slow game, even with 24-second shot clock, I often wondered if you would see something like that in contrast to what we're seeing today. Um, who would be the most successful? Uh, but it's, it's crazy how, again, the three-point shot is much more valued today than it's ever been when you have teams shooting 50 a night. Um, and you know some of you guys can't shoot it. I'm always afraid when certain players I watch shoot that people sitting in the front row are going to get hit in the head and get hurt (laughs) (laughs) because they don't shoot it very straight sometimes.
6: How would you, as a player, defend uh, an opponent that is known as a three-point shooter?
7: Well, Bobby, again, I think it's a team concept, not so much an individual concept. I, I, I just don't believe you should be able to reverse the ball, okay? Make defense play on the half court of, of a game. I also think we pick up players too high. I'd pick them up at the top of the circle. But these kids are so good with the ball, and they're so athletic. And if you give them a quick an open spot, they're going to get in a lane. But what's going to happen in the corner threes are going to be become – Really, a lot easier shots. To me, they're not much more difficult than a than a foul shot, except it, it's at a higher pace, and you always have someone running at you. I think that's one thing. Um, but I just believe in trying to force everyone play half of the court defensively, and if you can't do that, if you can't do that, I think you're going to give up a lot of a lot of three point shots. Uh, I just think it's easier to play defense that way, and I've always believed that. and And, uh, you know, defending pick and rolls is all we see in basketball today. I just think you almost put two people together out there. I think you should trap them a lot more. Uh, Some teams do that very successfully. And there's some teams that just are not very good at doing it because their talent is not good enough. But you can still do those things, and these players are so talented today that they're going to be able to get away with it anyway. So uh, a lot of his talent, I think a lot of his philosophy, how you, how you play it. Um, and also, there's some guys that just can't guard anybody. Let's <laughs> face it, they can score, but they can't guard anybody. Yeah, and so that's why you see so many people trying to have team concepts today. Mm-hmm. Everything related to basketball is team. It's not individual. You'll have great individuals that can win games for you. But they have to be able to assimilate themselves to allow the other players to prosper also.
5: As a basketball, can you give the audience an idea of what your day-to-day looks like as a basketball executive? I think for us who are fans, it's something fascinating to think about, and obviously you've been in a lot of different front offices. Um, Can you just take us through just certain interesting aspects of that job that people might not understand?
7: Well, first of all, um, I think it depends on the person who's involved. I've always felt your personality, regardless of who you are, is probably going to reflect number one, who the people you hire and, and the people that you have that have the same desire you have to win. You know, everyone talks about sometimes, oh, you know, I want to do this, I want to win this. But there's a lot of people who get a job in the NBA, it's happened before, and a year later they're looking for another job. Um, so if you can get a good group of people together, in my opinion, that have great camaraderie and allow each other to change, uh, allow allow each other to exchange thoughts and ideas about what they're looking for in a player, never, never disrespect someone's attitude. I don't care who it is. I used to have a guy that worked as a security guard. He would come up to me all the time. His name was Lee, and I said, "I kept, Lee was... He was a pretty amazing guy and still around and a very religious man. And he'd come up to me, and he's from the South, and he said, Jerry, you know, what if we got this player? What, what if we got that player? So what he was telling me, that he was like many people, you know, make me general manager for a day, <laughs> um, doesn't quite work that way. But I always listened to him. And I think one of the things that, that, that I learned, one of the greatest lessons in my life um, when I went from being a player to uh, to an executive, um, we used to have a security guard that used to escort me to my car. You had no private place; you had to escort. Me. And obviously, there would be a lot of kids out there wanting to sign things, and and he would stay there with me until I was done signing. And I think the thing that I learned most from him, I, I always remembered his his birthday, Christmas. Thanksgiving. I always because I really liked this guy. He happened to be a black man, by the way. And I'll never forget that when I moved up to the front office, and I didn't park there then. I parked out front during the day, and every once in a while he'd come up and say hello. But he had a retirement party, and I'd just gotten off of a long trip, a scouting trip, and I went to the office to do some paperwork, and I was dead tired, and my, my assistant said to me, she said, you know, uh, this gentleman's going to have a, 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 a retirement party tonight. And I said, oh, my gosh. I said, I don't know if I want to go do this or not. But I'm really glad I did, okay? So I went in there, and there were about 80 people there, friends, other people, family. And he got, to, got up and started talking about how proud he was of his assignment, how proud he was of his job. And then he said, you know, he started talking about me. And I left there with tears in my eyes. Um, he's talking about how proud he was to, uh, to be able to t- uh, escort me to my car, um, how I always treated him. Um, I learned a lesson that night, uh, and the lesson was this. Regardless of how menial someone's job might be, um, don't ever think that they don't think they're as important in their job as what they do. Um, From then on, I used to do something really interesting. I used to go in the office. I'd be one of the first people there. I would go downstairs, the janitors, the guards, everyone, uh, and I would always say hello to them every morning. It's just something I learned along the way. Well, sometimes we think that because we're so busy, uh, you know, we're we're all like, We're all like. Uh, don't put yourself on a pedestal because you're no different than anyone else.
5: That's a great story. Um, for those, you mentioned a scouting trip. When you go on a scouting trip, what do you take us through what you're looking for when you're working on players <clears throat> or the intangibles?
7: Well, I think there's two things obvious, okay? Hard work is a skill, as I mentioned before. <clears throat> and I think just watching players uh, interact with their own teammates, but You can see skill, okay? You can see skill. And I've always felt that the thing that separated really great players was how they play the game. If they're really, and most of them are fast, athletic, um, some of them see the game in slow motion. And those are the ones you want on your team. But also you might be, there's different things in drafting players that are really important Let's say you have a great team, and your championship team. What are you looking for? All these young, so-called great prospects or one-year players today—they're going to almost all be drafted in the top, if they're any good, or if they got a big, uh, if they got a big, uh, massive amount of publicity behind them, they're all going to be um, drafted, and they might even not be worthy of the draft. They were one year, and in college, and they've been playing AU ball, which is like they might play 80 games a year to play high school ball. So they've been year-round players. And you just wonder, you know, why do some of them fail? I think some of them fail because they've been so dominant for so long and they get against competition that's better than that. I mean, they're more competitive because they haven't played against men. And then secondly – I think the other thing is is that they get against someone better and all of a sudden they can't, they, can't they, they just don't have the will to get past that person. And I think they lose their confidence and some of them will go to Europe and have great careers. Some of them will come back from Europe and play the kind of role that they should have played in the start as, a, as not a star <clears throat> but as a subservient player, a bench player, someone who can contribute. But all of them are not going to be stars. And you'll see a lot of these teams in the NCAA tournament, these mid-major teams, they have players that stay there three and four years. And many times they have coaches have been the same system. These kids sometimes turn out better because they've been coached with a system for a number of years and just thrust into a program that It's going to get a lot of attention, and most of these high-profile kids go to these big schools where they're going to be seen on TV all the time. Uh, But I don't think it's – you know, it's hard to do, but it's – a lot of people do a great job in doing it, and a lot of people don't.
5: Can you describe the slow motion, go into a little bit more detail about the types of players and maybe some specific examples of players who play the game in slow motion?
7: Well, look at the all-pro team (laughs) – they're probably the first ten players in the league. They're, they're probably the two, the first top ten players, the first team all-pro and second team all-pro. Uh, but to me, it's it's pretty easy to see that it's really pretty easy to see it. They're uh, they're just gifted, and they have a gifted mind uh, to play the game. Different instinct. Um, if you would, and I'm not saying I was one of those players, but if you would set with me either at home or watching a game in person, I will tell you what the player is going to do. I can tell when he's going to shoot. I know where he's going to go. I can tell you when it's a turnover because he got his body in an awkward position, it's going to be a turnover, and he's anticipated something ahead of time. The good players don't do that. And it's a fast game. And, you know, when you see guys throwing the ball and hitting somebody in the back of the head, well, the, the guy they've hit in the back of the head or in the back with it probably is one of those players that's it's not a star. Now, now it's all about competition, okay? It's, about, it's, it's all about competition. But Jerry Buss gave me a, a start on life uh, after basketball. And... Um, I'll be forever grateful for for him to believing that I could uh, help run a team, um, have the kind of relationship I had with him personally because we were both relatively young then. And um, it was just for me, <clears throat> um, I was thrilled but scared to death, to be honest with you. Uh, I wasn't af- afraid of the uh, of the ability to identify players. But there's so much more to it than that. You know, finding the right coach for those players. And you do need the right coach when you have talented teams. Um, uh, Trying to make sure that uh, Jerry was aware of everything that was going on. Constant communication with him. Uh, He was there every day. We'd go in the office afterwards and, you know, we'd have a drink of water. (laughs) And, and. um you know, I watched the genie bus come there and grow up, and now all of a sudden she's running the team. So I saw a lot that happened there, <clears throat> but I think the, uh, my relationship with him was really special. And uh, uh, I, if I could thank him, I would thank him in person for believing in me because sometimes people don't believe in you. If they don't, you never find out what's truly inside of you, that you can do something different than being a basketball player or an athlete. And he believed I could. Uh, so that was really, really um, can't tell you how that made me feel. <clears throat> um,
5: a couple more, I guess, Clippers related questions. Just compare. We've talked about specific guys on the roster. Um, what are they going to need? What do the Clippers need to do to win their first NBA title this season?
7: Stay healthy. Put all our people out there together. I mean, this has been the most injury-filled league uh, team that I have ever seen in my life. Nothing major, knock on wood, nothing major, but we can't put our best players out there half the time. And um, this makes it difficult for a coach to manage. It also makes it difficult to build the cohesive part of it where players truly believe in each other. And uh, also something as simple as a substitution pattern. Um, Players need to know when they're going to play. And if if they can't play one night and... If, uh, let's, Paul George, who's missed a lot for us this year. Um, um, Patrick Beverly's missed a lot. We've had players everywhere miss a lot. And so one of the things I think is really interesting, if you have job X to do, okay, and you know you're going to be there for 15, 25 minutes, and that's your X job, right? Uh, If you're... If you're not there, you're going to ask someone else to do the same thing. And that's the cohesive part that does not get identified. Um, but uh, as I say, we've just had way too many injuries. But as I mentioned, this is really a capable team. We have a lot of really good players. And we have a lot of great competitors. But as I say, uh, it takes good fortune to win. It takes good fortune to w- be the last team standing. And that's what everyone's goal was at this point in time. And that's certainly the Clippers' goal for sure. Westward is a production
6: of the Dan Patrick Podcast Network, iHeartRadio, and Joy Road Entertainment in association with Workhouse Media and Sugar 23.
5: On behalf of Joy Road, we'd like to say a special thanks to our partners at Workhouse Media. Paul Anderson, thank you so much for being the Wolf Nick Piniella, so appreciate your insight and notes, and Andrew Greenwood, who helped with everything we did along the way. And to Mike Meyer at Sugar23. We could not have done
6: this without you. Thank you. Executive produced by Paul Anderson and Nick Panella for Workhouse Media and by Michael Sugar and Mike Mayo for Sugar23. Joy Road Entertainment is P.G. Cuccieri, Jim Young, Matthew Hatchett, Tim Livingston, And I am Bobby Glanton Smith. Audio produced by Casey Wayland of Wayland Productions and edited by Neil Cabana. On behalf of Joy Road Entertainment, I'd like to thank you, the listening audience, for going along this fantastic voyage we call Westworld.
1: No one likes to talk about money. Am I saving enough? Can I buy a house? Am I paying too much in taxes? Will I be able to retire? What if you could unlock insights about your finances in less than five minutes with a clear picture of where you stand today and where your money can work harder? Now you can. Visit facet.com to take the free quiz and get your financial wellness score today. That's F-A-C-E-T dot com. This ad is sponsored by Facet. Facet Wealth Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice.
0: Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. At the six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner. The rise. The fall.
1: guests.